passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, as many of you know, here at Crosswinds, we uh, typically preach through the Bible in a verse-by-verse kind of fashion. And uh, it's really kind of neat to see how God works uh, with that approach to Scripture. A lot of times, uh, things just fall into place where, uh, for example, um, in just a couple weeks or about a month or so, we will be looking at the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, and that's going to be the week before Easter. And there are a number of parallels uh, be- between the, the sacrifice of Isaac as well as uh, the, the story of the crucifixion. Uh, but sometimes it, it doesn't work out so well. And today is one of those days where on Valentine's Day we get to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, which uh, there, there's no easy way to connect those two, so we're not even going to try. Uh, but as we approach God's word, let's, let's pray uh, as, as we, uh, we ask for his blessing to be with us. God, thank you again that, the, that you speak to us, that you are present, and that your word is truth. God, we do ask that you would teach us this morning, draw us near to you, reveal more of yourself, and reveal more of humanity to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, a drone flew over the remnants of what was once Homs, Syria, and it showed some pictures of this uh, once thriving, bustling city. Why don't you go ahead, Zach, and throw that first picture up for us. Uh, Homs, Syria used to be the third largest city in Syria. It's been one of the central focuses of the Syrian civil war over the past five years or so. And this used to be one of the most beautiful streets out there, and this is what it looks like now. Just almost out of a post-apocalyptic movie. The amount of destruction here. The destroyed skyscrapers, the uh, ruined streets, and the cultural monuments really just serve as a reminder to us of the power of destruction for humanity. And it's oftentimes, when you look at that, it's a chilling reminder of what we are capable of. If you go a couple hundred miles south of what used to be Ham, Syria, we find another reminder, another monument of destruction. It's called the Dead Sea. Why don't you go ahead and throw that next picture up, Zach. The Dead Sea receives its name because of the wasteland that surrounds it. It is the lowest body of water on earth. Found, uh, its surface is found at about 1,300 feet below sea level. It is so, uh, the, the soil is filled with so much salt and sulfur that it is nearly impossible for any vegetation or animal life to reside there. And the name Dead Sea obviously comes from just this desolate landscape. On the southeastern tip of the Dead Sea once stood five cities. Maybe you're familiar with them from a couple weeks ago. Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar, or Bela. Like Homs, these five cities, this valley, uh, used to be a place of bustling life. It was a place that was filled with the sounds of children playing in the street. It was filled with the sounds of industry, of farmers, of people at market. But it's been silent for thousands of years. 
covered up by the expanding waters of the Dead Sea as a reminder to us of the divine wrath of God against the wickedness of humanity. All of us are probably familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a very popular story from the Bible. It's even popular outside of the church. But even though it's very well known for us, I think the reality is we, we as a culture, haven't really heeded the warning of this story. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 19 as we're going to look at this story. And this is a story for us of destruction and it is a story of deliverance. It's obvious that this is a story of destruction. It tells us of the destruction of not just Sodom and Gomorrah, but the other cities in this valley. But it's also a story of deliverance. It's a story of the deliverance of Lot, even though, as we will see here soon, he was far from worthy of being granted deliverance. Last week, as we ended Genesis 18, we saw that Abraham was standing before God. He was pleading with God to be merciful upon the city of Sodom and upon the rest of the valley of Zeboim and of Sidim. And as Abraham is standing on this mountain pass, overlooking Sodom and Gomorrah far off in the distance, he cries out to, to God for mercy. And, and really his, his words can be summed up in, in just one phrase, one question that's found in verse 25 of chapter 18. We focused on it last week. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham asked God if he will do right by Sodom, if God will do right by Gomorrah. And that's really the question. Even as Abraham is standing on this mountain overpass, looking out toward Sodom, this question stands as the overarching question for chapter 19. Will God do what is right? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 1, and find out. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast. And baked unleavened bread, and they ate. As we open up Genesis chapter 19, we are reminded of the fact that in Genesis 18, there were three men who came and visited Abraham. Two of them went on to Sodom. And while Abraham is, is talking with God at the end of chapter 18, these men continue on to Sodom. They had first stopped for lunch with Abraham in Genesis 18, and they arrive at Sodom at about nightfall. What is significant here as we look at these verses is who greets them. It is Lot who greets them in the gate. Now, in ancient times, the gate in a Middle Eastern city was a lot like the, the town hall or the city council room, or the courthouse. It was the place where the rulers of the city would sit. Oftentimes they would listen to different uh, cases and make judgments upon the people of the city. It was a place for the rulers and the elders of the city. So it's significant for us that Lot is here in the gate. Over 20 years ago, Lot and his uncle Abraham were traveling nomads. In Genesis chapter 13, 
Lot, when given the opportunity, chose to move his tents near Sodom. In Genesis chapter 14, we see that Lot, even though he doesn't live in Sodom itself, is considered to be one of the people of Sodom and as such is actually taken captive with the rest of the people of Sodom. Fast forward 20 years and now Sodom, or now Lot is one of the leaders of this city, shooting up through the ranks of Sodom, becoming one of its elders and is now on its city council. This is concerning to us. It's concerning that Lot is in such a prominent position in such a wicked city, but at the same time that that's a concern for us and that's a red flag as we read this passage, we also are taken aback by Lot's hospitality. You see, hospitality is a very important part of Middle Eastern culture, both ancient and modern. In Genesis chapter 18, the first 15 verses, Abraham shows lavish hospitality to these visitors. And here, Lot shows the exact same kind of hospitality. Even though Lot has made some questionable choices in his life, at the same time, he is showing responsibility, showing hospitality for these people. And as this is in a culture that admires hospitality, it really isn't all that surprising that Lot quickly became one of the leaders in this city. Now, as we continue forward, I think that we can learn a lot about Lot. We can learn a lot about hospitality from this man. See, hospitality, uh, the hospitality of Lot is not just shown to his friends or shown to his family, but it's shown to complete strangers. We can learn a lot about the hospitality of Abraham in the previous chapter, this man who showed hospitality that cost him a great deal. We can even learn a lot about the hospitality of modern Middle Eastern Muslims who take the call to show hospitality to the outsider very seriously. As we look at the hospitality of of many people who are not in the church, we can ask ourselves, if we love God, and we actually know God, then shouldn't we show a great deal of hospitality to the outsider? The story of Lot and his hospitality is a challenge to us. But even as Lot's hospitality shows us a great deal of how we should be hospitable, it also speaks a great deal about the state of Sodom. You see, Lot wouldn't have been the only person in the gate at this time. There would have been many other people that were in this gate, but only Lot is mentioned, and only Lot is the one who shows interest in serving these people and opening up his home to these people. For a Middle Easterner reading this story, this would have been a grave sin upon the people of Sodom, that they were unwilling to show hospitality to these two strangers. And even without saying anything, this text is already telling us a lot about the people of Sodom. It's telling us that they are wicked. Let's continue reading in verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. See, modern ears might not catch the sin of the first three verses of Genesis chapter 19, but we are very well aware of the sin of these two verses. Rather than showing hospitality to these two men, they instead, all of the men, gather outside of Lot's house with one intention. Rather than showing hospitality, they intend to rape these strangers. See, this text is is strikingly thorough in describing the completeness 
of what is taking place here. The comprehensiveness of this crime. It's not just a few drunks who are trying to pick a fight with the strangers that wandered into town. The text is clear that every single man in the city, both young and old, those who are rich and those who are poor, the leaders and the followers in the city, every single one of them gathers outside of this house with one purpose. What an indictment against the people of Sodom. You see, the the sexual perversion of Sodom is extreme. As we look at Genesis chapter 2, we see that God has good plans for sex. It is something good that God has given to humanity. It's meant for a man and a woman within marriage. And now you fast forward 17 chapters later and you see the greatest perversion of that gift here in Sodom. In the late 1940s, a Harvard sociologist decided to do some research and look at the trends of different uh, empires as they began to crumble and fall. And as he did this research, he found there was a great deal of correlation between every single empire that fell. And there was a great deal of correlation between a family life in that nation as well as the nation's life. After doing this research uh, on several... uh, different areas and several different empires, he found that there were a number of characteristics that were in common in these civilizations. Uh, I just want to read a few of them. In these, uh, in these civilizations, as they approached their demise, you would see marriage lose its sacredness. You would see divorce become commonplace. You would see alternative forms of marriage accepted. You would see adultery celebrated. The breaking of marriage vows was admired. You would see an increased amount of tolerance for perverted forms of sexual relationships. And there was an increase in sexual related crimes. As you hear those, you say, well, that's perfect for Sodom. But you could also say, well, that's frighteningly apt for the United States as well. It's frighteningly similar for the United States as well. Now, I'm not here saying that the sky is falling, that the United States is going to crumble to pieces any moment now. But I think it is important for us to remember and for us to realize that we are not all that different than the people of Sodom. I think a lot of times as we read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we can have a a tendency to look at it because it's so far away culturally. And it's so far away from from a time historical perspective that the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah can just become larger than life stories. Almost mythical in their origin. One author, he puts it this way. He says this, The events described in this dark chapter, Genesis 19, represent some of humanity's worst qualities. Sodom and Gomorrah have become iconic, almost mythical as cities of sin. And if we're not careful, we might forget that we share the same depraved nature as the people of these doomed cities. Despite the many thousands of years that separate us, our societal sin looks a lot like theirs. God preserved these accounts of Abraham, Lot, his daughters, and their culture to help us examine ourselves and then determine how we shall live. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah isn't all that different than what we experience today. The people of Sodom did what was unthinkable in God's eyes. But we would be mistaken to think that the only thing that is in view here is some sort of homosexual gang get-together. See, Sodom, the story of Sodom and reference to this town is mentioned several times throughout the Bible. Each of these times highlighting a different sin of Sodom. We've already mentioned here in Genesis 19, it refers to the inhospitable nature of the people of Sodom. That might seem insignificant to us, but if you look at Ezekiel 16, 
one of these passages that refers to the sin of Sodom. It actually says that the inhospitable nature of the people of Sodom was the primary reason why God chose to destroy this nation. And God chose to destroy this city. If you think that your inhospitable heart is no big deal in God's eyes, then you are sorely mistaken. Genesis 19, we also see, as we mentioned, sexual sin. But also, we see that they refuse to respond to the warning of God. As Abraham's two sons-in-law refused to heed the warning. In Genesis chapter 14, we see that the king of Sodom is ungrateful for Abraham rescuing them. And I, I think it's fair to say that the rest of the people probably echoed that same mindset. Ezekiel 16, I mentioned that earlier. It says this about Sodom. As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and uh, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Sodom and the cities of the valley, referred to as her daughters here, were guilty of many sins that we as Americans are guilty of. Pride, materialism, taking advantage of the poor, and more. Second Peter and Jude refer to more of the sins of Sodom. Sodom is far more guilty than just guilty of one sin. They were wicked in nearly every aspect. And I think that's important for us to recognize. God is not choosing to destroy Sodom simply because of one act or even one type of sin. He is condemning Sodom. He's bringing judgment upon Sodom because they are guilty of the same thing that we in America struggle with. Pride, materialism, taking advantage of the poor, being inhospitable, and having depraved forms of relationships. You see, it's easy to condemn the men of Sodom here. It's easy to point them out and say, I can't believe that that's what they were going to do. But the reality is, the people, the men of Sodom, most of them were not going to partake in the actual crime. Instead, they were simply there to watch. And ask yourself, how different is that than what we see on TV today? How different is that than what we see on computers today? Let the wickedness of Sodom be a warning to us. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. These two verses, these three verses rather, are some of the most disturbing verses in this entire story. If Abraham, excuse me, if Lot is supposed to be a contrast to the people of Sodom, then we would be we'd be sorely disappointed here. Lot is not righteous in this case, even though he's supposed to be. Instead of uh, acceding to their demands or instead of just standing up for himself and for his family, he instead offers his daughters to this crowd. And whether you have a daughter or not, maybe your blood just boils like mine when you hear about this quote-unquote righteous man doing this thing, making this offering. This weak, perverted man is willing to offer his daughters out to this nightmare. You might wonder, well, how on earth is Lot considered to be righteous. 
How on earth is Lot supposed to be the righteous one in this story? The answer is simple, but it's not at all satisfying for us. To put it simply, Lot was a compromised man. Lot was a compromised man. Notice these words from 2 Peter chapter 2. And if he, being God, if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he heard and saw. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. If we were just to read Genesis 19, we would not at all conclude that Lot is righteous in God's eyes. But yet, 2 Peter chapter 2 refers to Lot as a righteous man. And so we ask ourselves, well, how on earth is this man considered righteous? Obviously, he's not perfect. But then again, neither was Abraham. Abraham may have never offered his daughters out, but he sure seemed okay with continually offering his wife out. Noah, after all, wasn't perfect either. Noah got drunk and was found in a very precarious position after the flood. Of course, we could go to David, who uh, committed adultery and then decided to cover it up by having the man uh, murdered who he sinned against. And then Moses. Moses killed a man in cold blood and then stubbornly refused to follow God when God called him. If you look at this list of righteous characters, Lot seems to fit right in. Righteousness does not equal perfection. But at the same time, it doesn't equal perfection. We can also recognize that Lot is not Abraham. Lot is not Noah. Lot is not Moses. Lot is not David. He seems to be on a different level than them. He believes, after all, he follows his uncle Abraham out of Haran. But he is weak and he is compromised. After all, this is a man who is a leader in Sodom. He is likely married to a Sodomite here. His two daughters are engaged to men who are outside in that very crowd that he is trying to protect these men from. Lot is a compromised, convicted, conflicted soul. As Peter says here, he was tortured by the evil that he saw all around him. But even as he was tortured... He was willing to do whatever he wanted and whatever he saw was necessary to accomplish the same thing that his neighbors wanted. He wanted comfort. He wanted status. He wanted prosperity. And he was willing to do whatever it took to make sure that he accomplished those things. See, the reality is Lot is not a character. He is not someone that we can look at as a larger-than-life figure just made up in this story. The reality is Lot is in this room. I too often find myself like Lot. I would venture a guess that many of you do as well. People that want to believe, that do believe, but are often compromised by the world. Even people who are willing to do whatever is necessary in order to have our cake and eat it too. Lot, even though he was righteous, was far from an admirable character here. Let's keep reading verse 9. But they, being the the men of the city, said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. 
But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. See, in the face of the wickedness of Sodom, in the face of the wickedness of Lot, God intervenes. God intervenes on behalf of Lot. This word blindness is a really rare word used here. It's only used one other time in scripture, and it's more than just being blind. It's referring to an utter confusion setting uh, itself upon the people outside of Lot's house. God would have been utterly justified in leaving Lot outside with the men that he had a lot in common with. But God, in his grace, being merciful, grabs Lot and brings him back into this house. Lot has been saved for now. As we stand at the end of these first few verses, as we look at the sin of Sodom, just ask, is there any doubt in your mind concerning the wickedness of the people of Sodom? Is there any doubt in mind that they deserve destruction? No. In fact, the fact that Sodom is still standing at this point is a sign of God's mercy, is a sign of God's patience. Ask yourself the same thing about the parallels in our culture today. Are we deserving of destruction? Is there any doubt that our nation is wicked? No. The fact that it is still standing is a sign of God's mercy. It is a sign of God's patience toward humanity. And Lot seems to agree with this. He seems to agree that judgment is what is necessary here. And so he decides uh, to, to not even object to this coming uh, destruction that is about to happen. Picking up in verse 12, it says this. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get up from this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be joking. See, these angels were sent to Sodom on a twofold mission. First, they were to discern whether the outcry of this uh, city was accurate. If the people of this city were really as wicked as the outcry claimed they were. And they certainly were. Second, they were sent to find 10 righteous people in this city. And if they could find 10 righteous people, this city would be spared. They came up nine short. And the one that they did find was questionable at best. And yet because of this righteousness of Lot, God chooses to save him and save his family, provided that they will come and that they will escape Sodom. And so Lot has his wife and his daughters prepared to leave. And he goes and finds his sons-in-law who just moments before were a part of this crowd outside of his house. And Lot shares the news about what is coming. And they simply laugh. Can you really blame him? Can you really blame these two men for their response to Lot? After all, this man Lot came up to them and said, God is going to destroy this city and he's going to save me because I'm the only righteous one in this city. Come with me and you will be saved. God will spare our lives because of my righteousness. This is the man who just offered the two fiancés out to be a part of these unspeakable acts 
And this man is calling himself righteous. This man is, is saying that he is the one that God is going to spare. I really don't blame Lot's two sons-in-law for not responding with belief because Lot was compromised. I think the same thing can be said of us today as well. When we ruin our testimony by being compromised, it can, it can affect the way that we speak to other people who are outside of the church. It can affect the way that they look at us, the seriousness that they take us with. Lot is an example to us. And so these two sons-in-law refuse to go with Lot, and the number who are going to be spared drops down to four. And then the, the story continues by telling us about the escape from Sodom. Pick up in verse 15. It says this, As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of this city was called Zoar. Lot is one of the most frustrating characters in the entire Bible. Lot's words here are simply astounding. Lot has heard that destruction is coming. Lot has seen that this destruction is justified upon these people. If he stays in Sodom, he will perish and he lingers. Lot would rather choose to die with Sodom than he would be saved and lose all of his possessions. And yet God, in his mercy, grabs Lot and he forcibly drags him out of town, along with his two daughters and with his wife. The, the image here is of a child in the supermarket who is throwing a temper tantrum, and their parent grabs them by the collar of their shirt and drags them out of the store to the car. That's the exact same thing that is happening here with Lot. Lot refuses to leave Sodom, and God in his mercy forces Lot to leave Sodom. Sometimes God, God's mercy is not what we want. Sometimes God's mercy hurts us. Sometimes God's mercy means that we don't get what we want and we lose something that we love badly. Maybe you've experienced that before. That God has ripped away some of the things that you hold a little too close to in your life. It is an act of mercy. So Lot, not only does he linger until he's drug out of this city, but also at the same time, once he gets outside, he realizes he doesn't have enough time to escape. Well, of course he doesn't. He was too busy lingering in the city to escape. And so he whines to God again and asks God to spare the small city in the valley, another city a lot like Sodom called Bela, which is renamed Zoar here. And God is merciful and God is patient and God accepts 
this act and this request. And so Lot and his family head out. And they journey. And they continue going forward. And then the next day comes. And the sun dawns on Sodom like any other day. And the people of Sodom awake for this new day, unaware that anything different is about to happen. Little do they know that judgment is about to come. And then verse 23 comes. It says this, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of this valley, except for uh, Bela Zoar, has come. It's only really given three verses here. These verses make it clear that the destruction is complete, and we don't really know how it happens. Some people say that it was a volcanic eruption. Some people say that it was an earthquake that exposed the sulfur pits that were uh, surrounding that area. Lightning storms struck these sulfur pits, uh, igniting them and causing a great deal of fire and brimstone. We don't know how it happened. It very well could have been one of those two things. But what is clear is that it was not just random. It was not just something that happened by mistake. The repetition here in verse 24 of the word, the Lord, it's used twice. It's almost used kind of awkwardly here, shows us who is the one who ordained this. Who was the one who was responsible for this? This was not just a random event. This was an act of divine judgment against the people of Sodom. And so Lot and his family are spared, except, of course, for his wife, as it says here in verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Many of us are familiar with this story, and we have this sensationalized vision of what this looked like, about this being a miracle that God just turned her into a pillar of salt instantly. That's possible, but it's also probably not the most likely. The text tells us that Lot and his family reached Zoar by sunrise, uh, but really, if you look at it, it doesn't say anything about his wife. It doesn't say that his wife reached Zoar with him. It is possible that sometime during the journey through the night that she couldn't bear the thought of leaving behind her livelihood. She couldn't bear the thought of leaving behind Sodom, and so she stopped just to see if this was really going to happen. She thought that she was far enough away from Sodom that she would be spared in case something did happen. But also at the same time, she could return if need be. Or perhaps she did go all the way to Zoar. The fact that she is looking back is a sign of her disobedience. And her body, like the rest of the people of Sodom, succumbs to the noxious sulfur fumes. She dies and then the salt of the Dead Sea calcifies her body. And that's how this story ends. We are given an epilogue here in in verses 27 through 29 where we, we shift the focus from Sodom and Lot to Abraham. And it says these things. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow when he overthrew 
the cities in which Lot had lived. See, we cut away from the destruction of the valley and the deliverance of Lot to Abraham. And Abraham is back where he was the previous day, pleading with God, back where he was asking God to be merciful to Sodom and Lot, or excuse me, and Abraham goes to this place and he checks on Sodom and all he sees is this pillar of smoke rising up from the ground. The text says that Abraham is silent. We don't know exactly what Abraham is thinking, but we can probably guess. See, earlier Abraham had asked, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? As he's looking at the remnants, the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rest of this valley, the silence of Abraham answers this question for us. Even in God's judgment, God does what is right. Even when he brings judgment, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And that's a very sobering fact for us this morning. In fact, if you were to to sum up what this story is trying to tell us, you could say it would be this. God responds to the wickedness of humanity with mercy and judgment. God responds to the wickedness of us with mercy and judgment. God responds in mercy to the people of Lot, Lot and his family, even though they do not deserve it. God is merciful even to Sodom for the fact that he continues to bear with them, giving them a chance to repent for a number of years. There is mercy in the face of our wickedness, but also there is judgment. There is judgment upon Sodom for their persistent sin. A very sobering truth for us this morning. And you may be saying, well, how does this apply to us? What, what can we take from this story and say, this is why this text is in the Bible? I think there are five truths about God and about humanity that this text reveals to us that we must take to heart. And that's what we're going to close with this morning. First of all, the destruction of Sodom shows us the wickedness of the human heart. The destruction of Sodom shows us the wickedness of the human heart. Heart. The first 11 verses of this story are absolutely appalling. It's sin upon sin upon sin. It's wickedness on display in virtually every single way imaginable. So it might surprise us in the New Testament when Jesus says that the judgment will be more bearable for Sodom than it will be for those who hear the word of God and reject it. The fact that there is destruction for the people of Sodom shows us the wickedness of the human heart thousands of years ago. And yet Jesus' words in the New Testament remind us of the wickedness of the human heart today too as we reject the word of God, as we ignore the word of God, as we push it aside and choose our own way. Take heed the warning of Genesis chapter 19. The destruction of Sodom shows us the wickedness of our own hearts. Second, the destruction of Sodom shows us the certainty of divine judgment. It shows us the certainty of divine judgment. Make no mistake, judgment is coming. The destruction of Sodom, the destruction of Gomorrah, the rest of this valley, points to the coming destruction, the coming judgment at the end of time. The book of Revelation makes this clear. In the book of Revelation, it's really just about two kingdoms. It's, really, it's about the kingdom of God, with its capital city being the New Jerusalem, and the kingdom of man, with its capital city being Babylon. These are two cities that are in opposition to one another the entire time in the book of Babylon, or in the book of Revelation, excuse me. And notice, if you look at the words concerning 
the destruction of Babylon, concerning the destruction of the wickedness of humanity everywhere where it is opposed to God. And notice the parallels between this, what I'm about to read to you, and Sodom. It says this, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she has mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her, and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The parallels here are striking. The destruction by fire. The same types of sins are, are guilt, that, that Babylon is guilty of or the same thing that Sodom was guilty of. The people of Sodom, being Lot's wife, stand and wail about the destruction of the city and eventually they are overtaken by the same sort of destruction. And the people of the earth wail over the destruction of Babylon as well. As well. The judgment is coming. We may not know when, but this reminds us with certainty that divine judgment is coming. Take heed the warning of Genesis 19. Third, the destruction of Sodom shows us the uncertainty of judgment's timing. It shows us the uncertainty of judgment's timing. Although we have no idea when Christ is coming, we do know he is coming. The text that Jesus says, and Paul says later, says that he is coming like a thief in the night. If we recognize the certainty of divine judgment, while also at the same time saying in our next breath, well, I'll worry about that later, then we are absolute fools. We are absolute fools if we think that way. The people of Sodom had no idea what they were going to face the day the city was destroyed. They had no idea that, uh, no idea that that was going to be their last day on earth. And so also, we do not know. We do not know when this life will end. Take heed the certainty of divine judgment seen here in Genesis 19. Fourth, the destruction of Sodom shows us the temptation of the world. Shows us the temptation of the world. Next week, we're actually going to be looking at the story of Lot a little bit more. Just looking at a character study of seeing what went wrong in Lot's life. How this paradox lived of both being righteous, but also at the same time very worldly. But even now, we can take the warning of this passage and take it to heart that the world will tempt us. That if we are not careful, we can end up like Lot. Lot started his journey well. And by the end of it, he was left with nothing. He sought after wealth. He sought after possessions. He sought after status. And he was left with nothing in a cave, as we will see next week. Heed the warning of Genesis 19 well. And then finally, the destruction of Sodom shows us the mercy of God. The destruction of Sodom shows us the mercy of God. It is an absolute miracle that God does not demand judgment upon our sins the very moment that we commit them. It is an absolute miracle that God does not demand justice the moment we commit a sin. 
The fact that God is patient, the fact that God is long-suffering, is a great sign of mercy to us. Even as it was to the people of Sodom. Again, many of us are like Lot, more than we would like to think. The fact that God is merciful to Lot is a good sign for us because God, not because of Lot's righteousness, but because of his own name, drags Lot out of Sodom and is merciful to him. So also God is merciful to us as well. And so ask yourself, have you accepted that mercy? Have you accepted the mercy of God that he offers us at the cross? If not, do not wait. Do not wait, for the warning of Genesis 19 is grave and serious. Respond to the call of Genesis 19. If you want to know more about that, come talk to me after the service, and we can talk about what it means to respond to the mercy of God offered to us at the cross. See, Genesis 19 makes clear to us that God will respond, and God does respond to the wickedness of humanity with both mercy and judgment. Let us not presume upon the mercy of God. Let us not wait. Let us respond in obedience. Let's pray. Father, even as this passage is is very tough to hear, I know it's very tough to preach, I, I pray that you would grant us ears to hear. That you would help us to take this passage to heart, to live out the truths of this passage and to respond to the mercy that you offer us, the patience and the long-suffering nature of God, that we would respond in repentance, we would respond in obedience. Even as we pray that, we also pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.